Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 46. The passage today is beginning at verse 28 of chapter 46, and we'll go all the way through verse 27 of chapter 47. This is beginning with Jacob. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land. For there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. 
And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Father, I also pray that your spirit would be in us and with us and move through us today, that we would be ready hearers of your word, that our hearts would be open and receptive, and that you would speak through me in joy and in peace and in grace and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. If you recall last week, I mentioned verse 6 of chapter 46, Jacob and his family took with them to Egypt their livestock and their goods, which was pretty much the opposite of what Pharaoh had encouraged them to do. And then I said I would talk about that in more detail this week, and you can probably see why. A lot of the material at the end of 46 and the beginning of 47 focuses on Joseph making sure that Pharaoh understands his family members are shepherds and want to settle in a part of Egypt that will be more or less separate from the rest of the Egyptian population. So let's talk about why that is and how we can think about that with respect to our own lives. But to do that, I actually want to discuss the last part of the passage first, because there are a few concepts here that might trip us up in our own modern context compared to the ancient context in which these events occurred. In verses 13 to 27 of chapter 47, we see some detail of what occurs toward the latter years of this devastating famine. Remember that Joseph had previously been given the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream that after seven extremely plentiful years, there would be seven years of such extreme famine that people would hardly even remember the prior years of abundance. And what we seem to have here is a description of how Joseph led Egypt through the last two years of this famine. When the people had spent all their silver on food, verse 17 says they came to Joseph and he agreed to exchange their livestock for food that year. Joseph was still not interested in creating a welfare state because of the likelihood of waste on behalf of the people in such a situation. 
And also possibly because of the potential for a black market to arise in which some of the people would greatly profit off others, particularly off foreigners that came to buy grain. Then the next year, when the Egyptian people no longer had any silver nor any livestock left, then they came to him again and said, verse 19, the only thing we have left is ourselves and our land. Buy us and buy our land in exchange for food. And here's the question they asked, why should we die? That is to say, what good will it be for you and for Pharaoh and for all Egypt if the land becomes entirely desolate with no one to continue living there? Now, this is an important point for us to stop and consider. How often in our modern society do we hear the sentiment, either implied or even outright expressed, that humans are a blight on creation? Isn't that what we hear all around us? We need to depopulate the earth. There are too many people to feed, too many people to care for, too many people using up too many resources that are far too scarce. Isn't that one of the primary messages that permeates our entire culture? We need to consume less. We need to leave less of a footprint on the earth, less evidence of our very existence. The world would be so much better off without humanity. That message fills our cultural ethos. And on the surface, it might be easy to agree with such a sentiment. Because of Adam's initial fall into sin, and simply because of the way God created man versus the way he created the rest of the animals, mankind is the only part of God's creation that can actively disobey his commands, his moral will. We do have a will. We make real choices with real consequences. Now, let me be clear here. We do not have the kind of free will that God has. That is the essence of the creator-creature distinction. Only God has true free will. What in theological terms is sometimes called libertarian free will. Only God has the ability to choose something completely free of any other outside influences because his nature is not influenced by anyone or anything outside himself. Our nature is creaturely. It's dependent. It's highly limited. And so although we do have choices and we have a will, and the choices we make with our wills have real consequences, none of us has the type of free will that God has. As I was saying, our choices have consequences, and we are the only part of God's creation that can choose to violate his will of command. Not his sovereign will, but his moral will, as we discussed last week. So because humanity, since the fall, is inherently sinful, we can indeed be responsible for great evil and great destruction. So as I mentioned, on the surface, it might be easy to agree with the sentiment that the planet would be better off without humanity, or at least without so much humanity. But that is not a biblical view at all. No. Way back at the beginning of this series in Genesis, which I've been calling The Why of Life, about 60 messages ago, and praise God for his sustenance to get us almost all the way through this book. About 60 messages ago, we spoke about chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. I will read those for you here. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These verses are what we call the dominion mandate. God commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply, and have dominion over the earth, over all the creatures in the air, on the land, and in the sea, and to subdue the earth. This is God's declaration that mankind's role is to rule as a steward over his creation, in his place, so to speak, given that his image and his likeness exists within us. And this dominion mandate has never been rescinded by God. In fact, the best opportunity he had to change up that plan was when he essentially wiped out his whole creation with a global flood and started over with Noah and his family. And at that time, we see in Genesis 9, if anything, God reinforced that dominion mandate. Nowhere since has God rescinded man's role in subduing the earth and having dominion over creation. Does this mean mankind has always done this well? Of course not. As the prophet Jeremiah tells us, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. All kinds of atrocities have been committed by mankind, but none of that changes the mandate over the earth given to mankind by God. We saw some evidence of what I mean during the COVID shutdowns a few years ago. At first, it seemed like maybe those calling for depopulating the earth were right. After a few weeks of people mostly shutting themselves inside, if we happened, for example, to go out for a walk, we began to see and hear birds we'd never seen before in this area. Some might have said, or at least thought, the earth was beginning to recover from the damage mankind had been doing to it. But it didn't take very much longer to begin to see that such a recovery, left unchecked, would actually be a very bad thing. Areas began to be overrun with weeds that weren't being taken care of. Some wild animals began venturing into more populated areas and causing more havoc. And buildings and other structures that weren't being used were falling into disrepair. No, the depopulation of earth would be a very bad idea. Because you see, after Adam's sin, you remember God cursed the earth in Genesis 3. That's one of the primary reasons that mankind is still needed to subdue the earth. Because this cursed creation is not going to produce goodness on its own. Mankind's dominion is necessary. The intelligence, resourcefulness, and creativity and so forth, all part of the image of God in man, are necessary in order to continue to subdue the earth. If this was true according to God before sin and the curse, how much more true is it after sin and the curse? Mankind is not a blight on God's creation. Mankind, sinful though it be, is still the pinnacle of his creation. And that's why both the people of Egypt and Joseph himself knew that allowing the people to die out across the land would be a bad thing for the land. It was better that they and their land become servants of Pharaoh than that the people die out. Then the whole nation would have been devastated. 
So they requested Joseph to make them and their land servants to him on behalf of Pharaoh. And in the process of doing this, they thanked him for saving their lives. See how they responded in verse 25. Now again, we have some cultural baggage that makes this hard for us to understand. Our history in this nation of chattel slavery makes it incredibly difficult for us to understand why the Egyptian people could possibly see becoming servants or slaves of the king as a good thing. The reality is they were not slaves in the same way that we modern Americans think of slavery. Essentially, they agreed to owe Pharaoh a fifth of the produce of the land, 20%, a double tithe. When you consider that this was not a constitutional republic like our nation today, but had always been ruled by essentially a king along with a priestly class, these people decided that living and paying a 20% tax was better than literally starving to death. I'd say if I were in their shoes, I'd probably agree with them. This is actually one of the ways we begin to see the descendants of Abraham being a blessing to the nations around them and of those nations considering themselves blessed by him. And Joseph appears to be acting on the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream from about 14 years prior, because he tells the Egyptians at this point, sow your fields. He knows this famine is about to end. He's acting in clear faith upon God's revelation to him and upon the rock of how God has brought to pass during these last 14 years everything else he had revealed to Joseph would come to pass. As I said in a previous sermon about Joseph's leadership decisions over the nation of Egypt, I don't think we can make too many easy parallels to our nation at this time. It's a different world in many respects. But we can talk about how Joseph, in encouraging his family and settling with their livestock and their goods, was wise enough to know that although he was subject to Pharaoh, he was subject first to God and to God's plan for the descendants of Jacob. Remember I said near the beginning of this message that his family bringing their livestock and goods went against Pharaoh's suggestion? Joseph clearly supports his family doing this, as we see a significant portion of this passage is dedicated to Joseph explaining to his family how to approach Pharaoh about this. Joseph knows that the Egyptians consider shepherds to be an abomination to them. And we're not exactly sure why this was the case. Was it just a case of snobbery? We, we don't know. In either way, Joseph may have understood that the Egyptians might have been more likely to resent a population of foreign shepherds using up all their vegetation for their flocks. So the land of Goshen, which was on the very eastern edge of the Nile Delta and even contained a couple of lakes, would be both a fertile land for his people and their flocks as well as a region that was somewhat out of the way of the rest of the Egyptian population. And this is what I want to address and apply to us today. The concept that while Joseph was subject to Pharaoh, it didn't mean that he believed that everything Pharaoh thought was what was best for him and for his family before God, who was their ultimate authority. Another way of saying this is, and at the same time making it applicable to us today, although we are subject to various authorities in our lives that we are to obey and obey in many scenarios, that doesn't mean those authorities always have our best interest in mind in God's eyes. And so there are times we are going to hear the world, even some of our worldly authorities, 
But we're not going to listen to and accept their version of wisdom over God's wisdom. God always has the best interests of his people in view. Joseph knows that God has bigger plans than just keeping people alive during this famine. Joseph knows about the promises of God to Abraham, handed down to his own father Jacob, including the promise of becoming a great nation. And so Joseph is looking for a way within his power to be a part of how the family of Israel grows into a nation. I think we can speculate a little bit as to Joseph's thinking. Pharaoh may very well have been thinking that many in Joseph's family would want and be willing to take positions within Pharaoh's administration. On the one hand, that might sound great, but Joseph knows that his role in Pharaoh's administration has been ordained all this time by God himself, not just as a way of looking out for personal favors. He knows his family has always been shepherds, And he knows that the Egyptians find shepherds detestable. And so Joseph uses his knowledge and his position to speak to his family, speak to Pharaoh, and have his family speak to Pharaoh in such a way as to bring about what Joseph believes is a wiser course of action for his family, to retain their own livestock and have their own region of land in which they can grow as a people and not at the same time overly irritate the Egyptian population. Keeping them separated would likely also have the added benefit, in God's eyes, of limiting how much intermarriage occurred between Jacob's family and the Egyptians. No doubt, Pharaoh seems to be thinking at first, what a great idea it would be if more of Joseph's family had uh, been serving him as successfully as Joseph has, and, and also to have them intermarry with his people. But what does Joseph know about Joseph's family other than what he's observed in Joseph himself? Joseph knows there's more at stake here, and so he uses what he knows about God's promises and also what he knows about Pharaoh to convince Pharaoh to offer exactly what Joseph wants for his family. Joseph even made some sort of decision about which of his brothers would represent his family before Pharaoh. Verse 2 of chapter 47 says that he selected from his brothers five of them. doesn't tell us which ones, But the implication is that Joseph is choosing the brothers he believes are going to represent his family exactly the way Joseph wants to see his family represented before Pharaoh in order to persuade Pharaoh to decide what Joseph wants him to decide. Again, I think we can draw some parallels to what occurred during the COVID lockdowns a few years ago. At first, when nobody really knew how serious a pandemic it might be, Churches were accepting the initial assessments that shutting down businesses, schools, and even places of worship was an important precaution to take, necessary to save many lives. But as weeks progressed, it began to become apparent that more was going on here than just trying to protect lives. Lockdowns in some situations, but not in others, made no sense. The rationale behind other requirements was also seriously open to question. And so many, not as many as we might all have hoped, but many churches began to seriously question the validity of shutting down their worship services over the longer term. They began to recognize that the harm being done by preventing the people of God from worshiping together was often far worse than the potential harm of some people getting sick. Some of you have watched the video, The Essential Church, which highlights the thought process of a handful of churches across the U.S. and Canada during that time. 
If so, you know that some churches realized they needed to follow their God and not the suggestions, even the commands in some cases of their civil authorities. As I said earlier, God always has the best interests of his own people at heart. And as we discussed last week, where he commands, we are to obey him. Look at you all today on this bitterly cold day with legitimately life-threatening temperatures and wind chills. You all judged that it was more important to come together and worship God together with the other people of God than to stay at home where it's warmer and safer. I give thanks to God for you all. I praise God for you all. And I count it a great blessing that so many of you are that committed to worshiping the Lord together. We're not called to give in, to obey to the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age does not have the best interests of God's people at heart. The spirit of the age is fickle, guided by the ruler of this age, Satan, and does not want to see the people of God obey their God. The spirit of the age wants you to join in with their own reasoning and their own debauchery, as it says in 1 Peter 4 verse 4. Not to be the light of Christ to a lost, dark, depraved world. And so even when the world persecutes you for obeying God, it's still better to obey God rather than other people, as we heard in Psalm verses, uh, excuse me, Psalm 118. When the people who are expecting you to obey them don't have the Holy Spirit of God working for the good of his people. Who knows how we, as God's people, may continue to be affected and influenced by the spirit of this age. Some of us may end up having to make decisions about our jobs, whether you can in good conscience submit or not to something that may be required of you, soon if not now. Others of us may need to continue to resist the culture at large that tells us that promiscuity is a great thing and that a person's lifestyle is their own choice and you have no right to tell them they're disobeying God. If you submerse yourself in the word of God, you'll never come out of it thinking, for example, that homosexual lifestyle or even orientation is a good thing, blessed by God or even completely neutral. You only get those ideas from the spirit of the age. You'll never get that from God's word, that people trying to transition from one sex to another is blessed by God, or again, even neutral. That idea comes from the spirit of the age. Our job is to walk and to guide and to lead our own families out of God's word, not out of the spirit of the age. That's what Joseph did for his family, and that's what we must do. Now, I should mention this one more thing. It can be a little bit of a puzzler for us. Chapter 47, verse 12, says that Joseph provided food for his family. It doesn't appear that Joseph required them to pay for their food. And based on what it says in verse 27, that they gained possessions in the land of Goshen and were fruitful and multiplied greatly, it also doesn't appear that he required them to exchange their livestock for food either. Well, at first glance, we might wonder, how is that fair? How is it fair for these foreigners to be provided food for free during this famine when the entirety of Egypt had to give up all they had in order to get food just to stay alive? That's a reasonable question. I asked it myself. In fact, I was disappointed to see that most of the commentators I read didn't even address that question. 
But I believe the best answer to this question is, again, God has his people's best interests in mind. Why did God choose to bless the family of Israel at this time in this way? Who can say? But God always has his reasons. And the least we can do is to acknowledge that he is God and we are not. God had raised up Joseph to save the nation of Egypt. Without God working through Joseph, Egypt probably would have been wiped out by this famine. And so you can see that the Egyptians were thankful to Joseph for saving their lives, though indeed it was God who had done so. The fact that God chose to bless the family of Israel in an even more specific way, more specific way is God's prerogative for his people. The Egyptians who did not worship him, God saved from utter destruction. God had more mercy on them than he did on many others during the famine. He chose to bless his own people even more. That is a choice we simply have to leave to the wisdom of God and praise him for his wisdom and his goodness. And indeed, these are both explicit examples of the grace of God. Was God obliged to save Egypt from this famine? No. Was God obliged to save anyone from this famine? Again, no. So God exhibited grace to Egypt that he didn't give to, for example, Canaan. And God exhibited even more grace on the family of Israel. This is true today in terms of the grace of the gospel of Christ. God is not obliged to save anyone. But by the grace of the gospel, many are saved. Because of the finished work of Christ in his life, in his death on the cross, in his burial and resurrection and ascension into heaven, in all this, God continues to pour out his grace on many people who never deserved anything from him but his wrath. Earlier, I mentioned the dominion mandate. And I mentioned how difficult it is for some people to see that mankind is not a blight on creation. The only thing that will open their eyes to the truth is the power of the gospel. One clear way in which that dominion mandate has been expanded in this era is through the proclamation of the gospel. We have not only been called to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, we have also been called to proclaim the gospel to people of all nations, tribes, and tongues. The gospel is what turns mankind from selfish, foolish stewards into wise, God-directed and other-directed stewards. Let us then give thanks to God again for his grace toward us in giving us the gospel, in giving us himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the very means by which we can rightly have dominion over his creation until he comes in glory. Let's pray. Father, we just continue to be in awe of how you work all things for your glory, but even how you work things for the good of your people. And we give thanks for Jesus Christ who lived like one of us, but without sin. Because we know that without Christ, we too are in that position of receiving nothing but your wrath. So thank you, Father. Thank you for your continued grace. Thank you for pouring out your spirit on your church. Thank you for pouring out your spirit in us. I pray that you would do that even again right now, that you would be pouring your spirit in the people of God, 
in whom you dwell so that we can continue to see and proclaim that glorious light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this lost world that simply knows nothing other than to follow the spirit of the age. Father, open their eyes. I pray right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us, in thankfulness, in gratefulness because of God's grace, enjoy this means of grace he gives to us through the sharing of the Lord's Supper, through the sharing of the bread, the breaking of the bread, which indicates his body broken for us, through the drinking of the wine and the juice that symbolize the blood of the new covenant he ratified for us.